we are concluding this morning our study in the book of Jonah. We did chapters 1 and 2 last week, and obviously we're going to try and finish that this morning. Uh, we said last week that there are a number of books that are hated um, by critics and uh, the secular world in general in the Bible. And uh, Genesis, of course, because it deals with our origins, where we came from. Uh, in fact, it was actually a hatred for Genesis and that which is given regarding the flood and how this world became to be as it is that led people like James Hutton and uh, Lyle and so on, friends of Darwin, to encourage him and to bring in the whole long ages kind of idea. Uh, it was really motivated by a dislike of the Bible uh, and of the God of the Bible. But really, the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis deals with the incarnation of Christ. It's where the prophecies begin that say that God was going to send a saviour, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Look of Jonah, of course, deals with the resurrection of Christ. It's probably the greatest prophecy in the book. The book of Daniel is another book that's hated by critics because it deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ and then the book of Revelation, the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ. Now, in that sense, you see a real theme there. Um, Jesus is the, the kind of the central focus of every book of the Bible, one way or another. Um, but these books kind of stand out. We talked a little bit about where these things fit chronologically, where Jonah fits in the scheme of things, um, and somewhere round about 853 to 824 BC, um, from what most of the commentators feel from the, the timings and the details we're given. It, we certainly know it was about 50 years before Assyria would become the empire that it became, the greatest world empire at that time. And Jonah sent into the midst of this, in chapter 1, we see him as a reluctant prophet, not wanting to go. And we, we'll talk a bit more about that again, as we said last week. Uh, it wasn't just that he didn't want to be obedient to God. Uh, there was far more to it than that. In chapter 2, we see the repentant prophet, again, with some encouragement from God and with the aid of a fish and so on. Uh, in chapter 3, we see that revival in Nineveh. That's what we're going to go on and look at in a short while. And then chapter 4 what some refer to as the short-sighted prophet. Uh, and I think it's probably an apt description. Jonah gets bad press because of his disobedience, because he ran away from God. And then in chapter 4, as we'll see, it's a kind of a strange chapter to have in the Bible. It's a chapter, one of only two chapters in the Bible, or two books, that end with a question. But Jonah is no different than you and I. And the challenges and the struggles he faces are no different than the struggles that we face. And so whilst... There is, of course, a, uh, a correct view of this book that says that Jonah got grumpy with God and uh, he shouldn't have done. Uh, I think we need to cut him a bit of slack because we see a great picture of our own lives in this. Uh, and this is a, a really you know, interesting model that you see with these kind of four chapters. We start with that running from God. That's often how our lives are. And then we get to a place where God reveals himself to us. And it may be through a time of trial, a challenge, a difficulty, and that leads to repentance. It's God's goodness, God's kindness that leads to repentance. And so then we get to a time of revival in our own lives, and then the struggle begins. It's learning to submit to the Word of God. That was Jonah's biggest problem. Not that he didn't love God. I don't believe that at any time of this, Jonah was what you may call backsliding. Jonah was struggling understanding God's will. And in the circumstances he was in, he had a zeal for God and for God's people. 
But that was the problem. He didn't understand God's plan. And it's no different than our own experience, our own lives. And as we said last time, most attention is given to the fish. And yet, really, that's kind of missing uh, some of the, the key things in the book. Because the most incredible miracle is that a city somewhere about the size of London repented and came to the Lord, or, or put their trust in God, at least for a while. Jonah, as we said, did not misunderstand God's request. He was a patriotic Israelite. He knew that Assyria were very likely going to come and destroy his people because they've been starting to do that in the surrounding nations and getting a reputation for it and one of being barbaric, being cruel. Uh, they used to take people uh, when they captured them. And I know you're going to be having lunch in a while, but, you know, just try. He used to skin them alive. They skin these people alive and then hang them up to die. And it was kind of, there were reports of entire towns that would commit suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Assyrians. And so Jonah wanted to see Israel's enemies destroyed. And so when God says, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to them so that they can repent, you can start to see why Jonah was uncomfortable with that request. Surely the right thing is, as we see in a number of times in Psalms, you know, David and the other Psalms, pray for God's enemies and Israel's enemies to be destroyed. And yet here is God sending Jonah to the very enemies that he knows are likely to come and destroy his people. And of course, he was right, because that's exactly what did happen. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom was taken captive into Assyria. The greatest prophecy, as we've already said, is as Jesus highlights, the death and the resurrection experience of Jonah. And Jesus uses that as a a model of what he would do. And so you start to see that even way back here, some 800 BC, God was laying the foundation of what would be accomplished at Calvary, what would be accomplished through Jesus. And Jonah simply is a model, just as Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah were a model, looking forward to the the death and ultimate resurrection of Jesus. Jesus specifically refers to that being three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, which is why a number of commentators feel that Jonah actually died. So the kind of question that some people have, well, could you survive that long in a fish? Kind of irrelevant, because I don't think Jonah did. I think from the language, from the, the statement, the Jonah himself speaks of going down to corruption implies that he actually died, and God brought him back to life again. Wouldn't be the first time that God's done those kind of things. And it seems to be intentionally a model that God sets up for this purpose. And in Luke 18, we read, Jesus speaking, then he, or the narrative, uh, Luke giving us the narrative, then he, Jesus, took unto him the twelve, his disciples, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets. Which prophets? Well, really going right the way back to the likes of, well, even Adam. And then, of course, Abraham. Even things of, of Noah all fall into this. But Jonah specifically... All the things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spit it on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. No more than any other of the prophets, Jonah is the one that gives us this three days, three nights. <clears throat> when we look at Passion Week, as we refer to it, that week Jesus spent with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
It's incredible when you see the context of 1 Corinthians 15. That's where Paul tells us what the gospel is. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. What's the gospel? This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, Feast of Passover, Exodus 12 onwards. It was all laid out there that a lamb, a perfect lamb, had to be taken on the 10th day. Jesus was taken on the 10th day of the triumphal entry. And they were to keep that lamb until the 14th day. And then it would be killed. The word in, in um, Exodus 12 is bayan. It means between. Literally, the, the instruction was to kill the lamb between the evenings. They had a 24-hour window from sundown on what we would think of as the, as the Wednesday night to sundown on the Thursday night. The Jewish day begins in the evening. According to the scriptures, Jesus was killed. He was able to celebrate the Passover with his disciples from the point of the Wednesday evening when it becomes the next day in the Jewish calendar and still die on the Feast of Passover to become our Passover, according to the scriptures. And then he was buried. He was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat dies, it abides alone. And then he rose again the third day. Notice again, according to the scriptures, the third day was the feast of first fruits. All of these scriptures are fulfilled, and all the others in the Old Testament. You know, the, the whole narrative of the resurrection is tied up with all the prophecies that foretold it. This is one of the greatest evidences we have for the resurrection. The fact that it was spoken of for hundreds of years before the event. Getting back to Jonah, we saw in the first couple of chapters this downward spiral. You may kind of go through times when everything seems to be going down in your own life. Things seem to be compounding problem after problem after problem. We have those moments, those experiences. But Jonah went down to Joppa in completely the opposite direction. He then goes down into the sides of the ship, we're told. Then down into the sea. And down in the fish down to the bottom of the mountains, and finally, we're told, down to corruption. But then there's this change as he cries out to God. He comes up from corruption. He lifts his prayer up to the Lord. He lifts his voice up in thanksgiving. He comes up out of the fish, and he finally goes to Nineveh. And in Nineveh, again, this huge city, or huge, um, it was a huge city in this huge empire that was growing and gaining strength. Compared to Israel, it was just a tiny element of land at this point. We're going to look at some lessons we can draw uh, when we conclude, but just a couple of things to highlight at this point is that God is not slack concerning judgment. Jonah was concerned that the Assyrians should be judged. God wasn't slack. God wasn't forgetting or turning away or not doing it, but God will always warn before he brings judgment. And God was using Jonah to warn the Assyrians. Now, ultimately, that judgment did come. We're told that the cry of their wickedness had come before God. Now, on this occasion, they do repent. But some, somewhere between 100 and 200 years later, we find that Assyria is judged. Nineveh was eventually overthrown by Babylon in 612, or the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC. And it's actually the book of Nahum, which we'll get to, Lord willing, in a few weeks' time, actually prophesies that destruction. But what we do see here is God's mercy being extended to the Gentiles also. You know, we must trust God. And that probably is one of the greatest lessons that we draw from this book. 
that though Jonah thought he understood God and God's ways and God's plan, he didn't. There was elements that he hadn't considered, he hadn't thought through. And Jonah was looking very much in a very narrow perspective at that particular moment. He wasn't looking at the bigger picture, and that's always the hard thing for us, to look at something beyond what we can naturally see and to trust God. But you see, God is a God who sees the end from the beginning. His ways are higher than our ways. And that's the hardest lesson of all, to learn to trust God, as I've said many times. Chuck Misler used to say that God will ask you the same question every day, but in a different way. And that question is, do you trust me? So let's just get into the text. In chapter 3, we read, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, it's interesting, though, this second time, because there's a, an element here that, of course, God's grace is involved. God didn't just write Jonah off. He failed. But God gives him another opportunity. And actually, we find a, a number of these examples in Scripture. You know, you think of the law being broken in Exodus 32, but then Moses goes back up, he gets the, the second lot of the commandments, and it comes down, and the law is received the second time. The spies were sent into Canaan in Numbers 13, and they came back with that evil report, so they spent 40 years one or 38 years wandering. But then, after that, there's the conquest, as Joshua leads the nation over into the land that God had promised them. Of course, the first time Israel rejected their Messiah, but the second time, Israel will gladly receive him. You think of how much pain and hurt is caused because of the first errors but the joy ultimately. Israel were to be a witness to the nations. Instead, they became an astonishment. But Ezekiel 39, 23 tells us that Israel will one day be a sign to all nations. People are going to want to grab hold of a Jew who's going up to Jerusalem and want to learn about the God of Israel. You know, And then for us, of course, we were dead in trespasses and sins, and he's made us alive. So we see the number of these times, this second time appears. So the second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, <clears throat> now, God still had to call him the second time. Jonah didn't go back to God and say, okay, I'll go now. That call still had to come. And Jonah may have been thinking he was off the hook, no fish pun intended. But, you know, Jonah probably thought that maybe that was over now. But God calls him again and lays it before him. And saying, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city. And preach unto it. Preach unto it. He didn't say, go to Nineveh and just be a good witness. You know, let me see by your lifestyle. No, he was told specifically to go and preach. And again, specifically the preaching that I bid thee. In First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It may even sometimes seem foolish to us. You think, oh, I can't preach. They won't listen to me. Others think it's all silly. And, you know, so sometimes we, we clam up and we don't say, we don't share, we don't preach, we don't teach. God says it's through the foolishness of preaching. I just want to share something with you. This is actually from Ray Comfort. Some of you will be familiar with Ray Comfort. He had an article that was posted some years ago. And the title was, Was St. Francis a sissy? It's obviously a play on the St. Francis of Assisi. But was St. Francis a sissy? And this was a little story that he put up at the beginning. He said, 
150,000 children have been on the brink of starving to death, but thanks to the kind gift of a very generous billionaire, every child now had enough food to keep him alive. The gift had arrived in the form of one big check. The horror was now over. It was finished. It was just a matter of distributing the food using the few relief workers we had. Without them to get the food to the children, there would have been many more deaths. Some days later, a frantic worker burst into the camp and cried, some of the relief workers have stopped distributing food. Masses of children are dying. Why would the workers stop when there was plenty of food? It didn't make sense. The distraught man said, it's because one of them held up a sign that said, feed the starving children. Where necessary, use food. That had caused some of the workers to simply befriend the starving children without giving them food. It's insane. Ray Comfort goes on and says, I heard that St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. That statement upset me beyond words because it was a philosophy that I knew sounded deeply spiritual to those who were spiritually shallow. It made as much sense as feed starving children when necessary, use food. On the 16th of July, 1228, Francis of Assisi was pronounced a saint by Pope Gregory IX. That's a long time ago. So it's a little late for questions, but if I could, I would like to find out why anyone would say such a strange thing. Was it because he was fearful to use actual words to preach the gospel or to preach the truth of the gospel? Or was it because he thought that people would see that he had good works and hear the message of salvation without a preacher, something contrary to scripture? Romans 10.14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Whatever the case, 800 years since Francis, we have many who profess faith in Jesus. And no doubt using this popular philosophy to justify being speechless. To them, salvation truly is an unspeakable gift. Recently, someone told me about a conference where 100,000 Christians gathered to worship God. When I asked if they were exhorted to go out and preach the gospel to every creature, it was no surprise to me that they weren't. Instead, they were exhorted to live a life of worship. Again, that sounds spiritual, but you can't worship God without obedience to his word, and his word commands us to preach the gospel to every creature. I regularly meet those who think they can obey the Great Commission without using words. When they hear the gospel preached, they are usually offended and say things like, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't like the way you're saying it. With a little probing, they are relationship folks who think preaching the gospel means building relationships with the lost and never mentioning words like sin, hell, judgment day. They think that real love is to withhold the bread of life from those that are starving to death. Remember that Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. According to the dictionary, a sissy is a timid or cowardly person. And from what I understand of St. Francis, he was no sissy. He was a loving man who was not afraid to use words when he preached. He wasn't frightened to preach repentance to a sinful world. However, there have been times when I could have been called that name. I felt the grip of fear and have wanted to drop words such as sin, hell, repentance, and judgment day when I've preached to sinners. 
I don't want to come across as being unloving or judgmental, but I fear God, uh, but I fear God more than I fear man. So when God's word tells me to use words, I use words, despite the consequences. Listen to the Apostle Paul's sobering warning to his hearers. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Perhaps he spoke about being free from their blood because he was familiar with God's warning, Ezekiel, of his responsibility to warn his generation. In Ezekiel 3.18 it says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. And someone thinks that they can feed starving children and not use food, that's their business. But when their philosophy spreads through the camp, it becomes an unspeakable tragedy. If we become passive about the Great Commission because we are more concerned about ourselves than the internal well-being of others, we may well be able to hide our motives from man, but not from God. He warns, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? There's an interesting irony to this story. Ray Comfort concludes and says, after a little research, I came across a quote about the famous saying. It's from someone who'd been a Franciscan monk for 28 years and had earned an MA in Franciscan studies. He contacted some of the most eminent Franciscan scholars in the world to try and verify the saying. He said, it's clearly not in any of Francis's writings. After a couple of weeks of searching, no scholar could find this quote in a story written within 200 years of Francis' death. So it wasn't St. Francis, who said not to use words, who was it? Who is it that would like to see the truth of the gospel hindered from being preached to every creature? That doesn't need to be answered. The time is short. The laborers are few. Please cast off your fears and equip yourself to preach the gospel with words. They are necessary. Okay, that's a bit of a long thing. It will be in the notes. Read it again, because I think Ray Comfort is absolutely uh, right on what he says there. And people use that kind of like, well, it's okay if we're living the life. Our life can be an example. And people say, no, no, preach the gospel, use words. That's what we're commanded to do. That's what Jonah was told to do. That's what Jonah did. And that's what brought about the results as he was obedient to God. Jonah lived in Gath Hepa. Of course, his initial journey was down to the Joppa. That's where he went initially, completely opposite direction to Nineveh. So again, Joppa right down there on the seacoast, Nineveh way up here. <clears throat> now, Nineveh, as we mentioned last week, at the time of Jonah was about 14 miles across. They're estimated somewhere around about uh, 600,000 people population at the time. 100-foot walls around the city. There are 1,500 towers, 200-foot tall around the city. Very imposing, and 15 gates around it, five of which have now been uncovered by archaeologists. Interesting, Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yeah, I say unto you, fear him. 
a reminder not to be fearful of man. You know, we often shy away from preaching or talking to other people because of what it's going to do to our reputation. And we have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned about our reputation or God's reputation? Because actually, when you get involved in conversations, you'll normally find people will open up. People actually respond to the preaching of the gospel. There's a world out there that probably is more fearful and more confused and more afraid than at any time in our lifetimes, apart from maybe go back to the time of the Second World War, for those of you that, that kind of can remember that far back. But, but really, what we've been going through is so uncertain. It's such a, a shaky time for people. It's a great opportunity to be preaching the gospel. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey, as we've just been saying. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now it's not a particularly gracious message, but it's what he was told to preach. He just preaches the coming judgment. And interestingly, really, the words are, 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. And as he's walking through into the city, these are the things he's just shouting out and declaring. 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. Interestingly, it's the same. Those words are the same in both Hebrew and in the Assyrian. So there was no language barrier. There was no problem with him understanding what he was saying. It wasn't as if he was trying to speak in Assyrian and was getting it wrong. What he was saying was very clearly understood. So it's interesting in Acts 24, Paul is standing giving account for himself. And we read after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. And notice this, as he reasoned, this is Paul, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled. This non-believer when he hears of these things, specifically again of that judgment to come, trembled. You know, we need to preach the word. Spurgeon said this, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, and we sigh and cry until it shall end the reign of wickedness and give rest to the oppressed. Brethren, we must preach the coming of the Lord and preach it somewhat more than we have done because it is the driving power of the gospel. Too many have kept back to these truths, and thus the bone has been taken out of the arm of the gospel. Its point has been broken, its edge has been blunted. The doctrine of judgment to come is the power by which men are to be stirred. There is another life. The Lord will come a second time. Judgment will arrive. The wrath of God will be revealed. Where this is not preached, I am bold to say the gospel is not preached. Now, spinning this around, if we were to preach Jonah's message to our world today, it would go something like this. People of Nineveh, God loves you. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart. Believe in the God of Israel and you'll have peace and joy and lasting happiness. God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's very different from what Jonah preached, isn't it? Of course, there's the kind of the emerging church kind of thing that's, you know, been doing the rounds and, you know, just, this would be their message. People of Nineveh, God loves you. You don't have a sin problem, it's a self-esteem problem. If you call your God Dagon, that's fine with us, as long as you're sincere, worship the way you feel comfortable. We need to work together to tackle the social problems, to combine our resources. Let's not get bogged down with doctrine, we need to reinterpret our beliefs and make them inclusive. We reject fundamentalism of any kind, it's divisive. We're all going to the same place after all. Those are typically the messages 
that a lot of the church are preaching today. Arthur Pink said this, The unsaved today are in no condition for the gospel till the law be applied to their hearts, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a waste of time to sow the seed on ground which has never been ploughed or spaded. Spurgeon again said this, One other reason why this soil was so uncongenial was that it was totally unprepared for the seed. There had to be ploughing before the seed was sown, and no harrowing afterwards. He that sows without a plough may reap without a sickle. He who preaches the gospel without preaching the law may hold all the results of it in his hand, and there'll be little for him to hold. You know, we've been given the law in the Bible. And the Bible says that the law is not for the righteous, but it's for the ungodly. And in Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says unto them which are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. The law is there to show people that they are sinners, that they are guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do you get that? By the law is the knowledge of sin. We have a world out there that doesn't even know that it's sinful. It kind of knows things are wrong, but it hasn't really understood that it's rebelled against the holy God. The law is what shows people what sin is. Paul says, I have not known sin, but by the law. Romans 5 verse 20, the first part of it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound. Do you get so what Paul is saying is the law was given to expose the offense. The offense was already there, but the law shows us the offense. All right, just consider this. Now, again, this won't apply to any of you ladies. I totally understand that. But men, you may appreciate this. You may have been driving at some point, and you've noticed there's a police car in your mirror, and the first thing you do is check your speedo. Because probably if you're a man, you may have crept slightly over. Of course, ladies, you don't do that. I know you don't do that. My wife tells me, so that's fine. But you know what? When you see that police car, or if you pass a car at the side of the road, or there's a speed camera there or something, you slow down. You may have been doing the speed limit, but the, the presence of the law brings your attention to the offense. It makes it real to you. This is the whole principle of the gospel and why the law was given. In Acts 17, it says, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. Wherefore, he has given assurance to all men, and that he has raised him from the dead. God is going to judge this world. We need to let the world know. We need to be bold in our preaching. We need to be clear in what we're saying. I love this quote by Paris Reinhead. He said this, If I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on public preaching of the plan of salvation in America for one to two years. Then I'll call on everyone who has the use of the airways and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the law of God until sinners will cry out, what must we do to be saved? Then I'll take them off in a corner and whisper the gospel to them. Such drastic action is needed because we have gospel-hardened a generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved before they have understood why. They need to be saved. Again, these four words, yet 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. In Luke, we're told there that Jonah was a sign. Notice, 
as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. He did preach, but he was also a sign. I suspect this is something to do with the fact that he spent this time in the belly, uh, the, the, the belly of the, the fish. And we know that the Ninevites worshipped Dagon, the fish god. You can see it on the carvings and things, even the British Museum, you can see these things. Again, you see the scales on the headdress and so on. And so this character who's been swallowed by this fish, thrown up on shore, the stories would have spread. It's not the kind of thing you keep quiet. The, the sailors would have got back to port. They'd have said what happened. They were probably very surprised to find Jonah alive again. But the stories no doubt had got there. And this man, who's been swallowed by a fish, thrown up on the land again, suddenly arrives at the place where they worship the fish god. No doubt he was a sign. Forty days. Just another quick thing just to... Yeah, it always seems to indicate a time of testing in the Bible. There was 40 days of rain at the time of the flood. There was 40 days of mourning when Jacob died. Moses was up the mountain for 40 days in Exodus 24. 40 days spying out the land in Numbers 13. But there were 40 days when Goliath was presenting himself to the army of Israel and trying to challenge someone to come out to him. Elijah was sustained for 40 days on one meal. And Jesus, of course, was 40 days in the wilderness. It always seems to be a time of testing. God doing just that with the people of Nineveh. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Interesting, isn't it? Doesn't they believe Jonah? They believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Notice that the word came. It doesn't say that he heard Jonah himself. It implies the, the story got to him. The people have said, you know that, that guy that got eaten by the fish? Well, he turned up at the gate. He just walked in. He's marching through the city. And he's just been saying, 40 days, Nineveh, judgment's coming. And the king repents. He humbles himself before God. And we're told in verse 7 that he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king. And his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Acknowledging that they have been sinful. Why? Because they've been confronted by God's word. They've been confronted by, as it were, God's righteous standard. And the judgment was coming. And that judgment coming produced fear. And that fear produced repentance. Verse 9 carries on. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works. Notice what it says. God saw their works. There was a change, not just change of heart, change of mind. There was a change of their very actions. The things that they were doing changed overnight as they realized that they were in trouble with God. You know, I've seen individuals come to the Lord, and they have changed almost overnight. A friend of mine, who used to play in a band with years ago, was into a very, very worldly lifestyle. It was very much kind of the drugs, sex, rock and roll type of lifestyle that you you hear about and read about. He came to the Lord. Utter transformation. Those desires and appetites for the worldly things just went overnight. His vocabulary, his language changed. 
He became a wonderful, lovely man of God, a worship leader. He's now pastoring a church. God saw their works and they turned from those things. They changed. And notice, we're told that God repented. Another, another translation puts relented. Uh, the idea, the Hebrew word is nacham, is decide to breathe strongly. We, we could kind of paraphrase that and say, God breathed a sigh of relief that he wasn't going to have to bring judgment. And, you know, as a parent, you may have had that experience with a child where you, you, you if, if they do this, you're going to have to tell them off, and then they don't, so you don't have to. And it's like, oh, that's good, because I don't want to have to. Same kind of situation. God repented of the evil that he said he would do, uh, do unto them, and he did not, did not. So it's into the last chapter. Now, the, we have chapter breaks, which sometimes are good, but also sometimes can be a little bit of a hindrance, because the chapter begins, but. So we get to go back to the previous verse and understand that it's because the Lord repented or relented of that judgment, because they'd, the, the Ninevites had repented. And then we're told, but it displeased Jonah. What displeased Jonah? That God had shown mercy. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Uh, It just implies he was really frustrated and agitated and very unhappy that this this had occurred, because this was exactly what he feared. And he says, and he prayed unto the Lord. Notice the line of communication is still open. Don't think that Jonah was backsliding. Jonah loved God. He loved God's people. And that was his big problem, because God was not doing what Jonah thought God should do. But Jonah was very sincere. He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? It's interesting because this record we have is obviously from Jonah. Nobody else was there to, to give this to us. This has come from Jonah. And Jonah was willing to publish this. And you'll see why as we go on. Jonah's saying, Lord, it's because I loved your people, because of the promises you've made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because you are the God of Israel and you made those promises to David that there will be somebody to sit on his throne. It's because of those things that I didn't want to preach to these people because now you've been merciful to them and they're not going to be judged. Well, of course, Jonah didn't see what was coming. They would be judged. They would be destroyed. But there's a number of important lessons that come out of this. We'll touch on a few in a while, but not least that the gospel went to these Gentiles. That God gave them the opportunity to repent. And Genesis, therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentance to thee. The five things there I think are fine. He knows who God is. He says, God, it's because you are gracious I knew you'd do this. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> he complains of the very mercy that had given him a second chance. When he was crying out to God, he was crying out to God that he knew was gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentance of evil. When he was down in corruption, he was grateful that God is that kind of God. But God is without partiality. And God, as we've said always at the beginning, always brings that warning of judgment first to allow people the opportunity to repent. You know, and this is one of the big challenges for Jonah. And it's a challenge for us. It's hard to see the end from where we are. 
Of course, Jonah was concerned that Assyria were going to come and that Israel would be taken away captive. They were. The northern kingdom was. But you see, even that was part of God's plan. It was in fulfillment of what God had already said back in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere, that because of the nation of Israel's disobedience, God would scatter them around the world. Now, Assyria were one of the tools that the Lord used to do that. Jonah didn't see the big picture. He didn't see the faithfulness of God. Jonah almost is of that mindset that God has given up on his people. But God will never go back on his promises. They're just not always fulfilled in the way that we imagine, the way we expect, or in the timing that we expect. And that's more often the issue. It's all a matter of trust. Therefore now, O Lord, take thee, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, the commentators divide this kind of what Jonah is really saying here. I mean, clearly he's pretty low because of the situation. And he's concerned of what it now means to his people. And it may be that he's concerned about returning home and saying to his countrymen, well, God was merciful to Assyria, and now they're okay. God's not going to destroy them. And you could almost imagine his colleagues, his friends, people back in Israel, even the king, if the king got to hear of this in Israel, you know, Jonah, why did you do that? God told me to go. But why can you preach something else? You know, they've repented and you see the problem. And maybe Jonah just did not want to go home and face this. Oswald Chambers talks about us becoming, and the expression he uses, amateur providences in other people's lives. What he means is that we try to ease the pain on someone else of something that we're maybe going through. Maybe we're going through something and we look at it and we kind of, we resign ourselves to the fact that well, God's in control, I don't get it, but you try and prevent other people from being hurt. But sometimes we need to step back and trust that God has got everything covered. He knows the impact of your obedience on someone else. Jonah was brokenhearted at the prospect of what was coming. And that is to his credit. Yet what a message it should have been to Israel. Themselves have been given over to idolatry now for quite some time. Jonah could have gone back and said, we preached, I preached to these people in Nineveh that were wicked, they were ungodly, and God had mercy on them. He's going back to a nation that had known the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if only they'd repented too. What a powerful opportunity this could have been. You see, if God had spared the Gentiles, he might spare them also. Sounds a little bit like Romans, isn't it? Romans 9, 10, 11. Paul says there, I say then, have they, Israel, stumbled that they, Israel, the nation of Israel, should fall? He says, God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for, for to provoke them to jealousy. Well, what a great opportunity this would have been to provoke the northern kingdom to jealousy, that they would have repented too. Sadly, they didn't. God then asked Jonah a question and says, Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? You know, whenever God asks you a question, it's not because he's looking for information. God doesn't need your help. God's trying to get you to think. That's why God asks us questions. You know, we're very quick to react and we're much slower to muse, to think on something. You know, Jonah, is it good that you're upset? Why are you frustrated about this? Think about it. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. 
and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Back in chapter 9, verse 20 to 24. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Show the thing formed, say to him that formed it, Why as thou may be thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lamp to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? I read this quote last week, again, Basel Chambers, and I just think this is a, a kind of almost an apt summary for this book. The idea is not that we do work for God, but that we are so loyal to him that he can do his work through us. I reckon on you for extreme service with no complaining on your part and no explanation on mine. God wants to use us as he used his own son. And that's the real challenge. You may not understand what you're going through, But you've got to hold on to what you do know, that God is good and does good, that God is always faithful, that God's judgments are righteous, always. Read through Psalm 119. It's full of those statements. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made a booth and sat under it in the shadow until he might see what will become of the city. So he's kind of now waiting for the 40 days to be up. He's done his bit, he's gone, he's preached, they've repented. God said he's going to relent. So Jonah's gone outside and he's kind of counting down, waiting for day 40 to see what will happen. And we're told verse 6, And God, the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah's plant that comes up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. The sun was beating down on him and suddenly he had shade. And he was joyful because he had now this, this shelter. But then God prepared a worm when, in the mor- when, uh, when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did rise, that God prepared a venomous east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die. So once again, back to where he was. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. God sometimes uses external things to get our attention. Notice that God prepared a fish. God prepared a gourd. God prepared a worm, and God prepared this venom that wind. All these were miracles that God did. But all of them, external things that God used to get his attention. And sometimes God will use external things to get your attention. The words, the Hebrew word, manoi, it just means appointed. God appointed the fish, the gourd, the worm. God chose them and used them to get a message across to Jonah. You know, when things happen that seem unusual, Stop and ask if God is trying to get your attention. Remember the situation, Samuel and Eli, in the middle of the night. Samuel hears that. Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up and runs to Eli. Eventually, Eli figures that something's not right here. Something's not normal. And he kind of realizes this God. God's trying to speak. So he says to Samuel, next time you hear the voice, say, yes, Lord, your servant hears you. I'm reading a book by Chuck Smith at the moment all about uh, faith. And Chuck was saying that his dad used to have on his desk at home a little plaque, and all it said on the plaque was, all things. What a great message for us. 
We know that all things work together for good. You see, we know it's true right up to the point it happens to us. And that's when we question God. That's when we doubt. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And when everything's fine and it's sunny and it's a great day and it's, it's not a problem, but when the clouds come, when we go through those dark times in our life, that's when it's hard. That's where Jonah was right at this time. It didn't make sense. This is when we have to hold on to God. God said to Jonah, do so well to be angry for the God. The second time the question you know, about Jonah being angry, you know, is it right? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Jonah was thinking about how this plant had provided relief for him and shelter for him. And God then said to the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast neither laboured nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in the night. And shouldn't I spend Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six or thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Now, it's interesting, if you just do the maths, we're talking about probably 120,000 children and so on. You know, Jonah's humbled at the end here. And it's almost this picture that God says to Jonah, you're like that gourd. You were raised up to provide shelter for the people of Nineveh, to provide relief for them. And I did that for you because I loved you. And I'm doing this because I love them. And Jonah, as I've said already, leaves us this record. These little bits at the end, particularly chapter 4, it's a strange thing. It'd be so easy. Jonah could have just put this to the side and never ever put it in his book or had it recorded. But Jonah has left us this record. It's only come from Jonah. No one else was there with him. And I think this tells you an interesting fact, and that is that Jonah looked back on this and realized what God was doing. That God's ways are above our ways. And this book is as much about trust as it is about anything else. Just to conclude, there's a few just interesting models that we see here. Jonah loved his own people, just as Jesus loved the Jews. His own people had rejected God. Jonah gave his life to save Israel. Jesus said he was sent not to anyone else but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the grave, three days, three nights, obviously applies to both. And after he rose, effectively Jonah comes back up and goes, there's a message of God's salvation. And faith in God went to the Gentiles. Just as with Jesus, there's an interesting parallel there. But Jonah's also an interesting type of Israel, called to be a witness to the Gentiles. The nation of Israel were to be a witness to the world. But both disobeyed and rejected the Lord cast into the sea of nations and consumed, cried to the Lord from the depths, miraculously given life again, eventually to become a witness to the Gentiles. And then Jonah as a type of us. We were called by God. We ran away from his voice. We went down to the depths and cried out to God. He puts a new song in our mouths. We're given a second chance, new life, born again. We're commissioned to witness of the coming judgment. And God allows us to go through windstorms to show where our heart really is. He labors and causes to grow all those that he loves. And as we said at the beginning, running from God 
chapter 1, repentance, chapter 2, revival, chapter 3, and then the struggle in chapter 4. And that's where most of us are right now. We're in that struggle, learning to submit to the will of God. Let me leave just a couple of verses. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What is it you trust in? What is it that you are banking everything on? You know, it might be a career. I was there. I'm not saying I trusted entirely my career. I had a great job. It was paying very well. Life was wonderful. God's taken all that away. And sometimes you have to ask that question. Was that becoming something that I was trusting? Was I just getting so comfortable? You know, and it wasn't I was in a place where I wasn't walking with the Lord. I was comfortable in my walk with the Lord, but sometimes the Lord will strip away even the good things so that he's all that is left. Job 13, 15, I think one of the greatest statements in the Bible. Job, in all that he'd gone through, everything had been stripped away from Job, says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let that be your prayer. Whatever God takes you through, You may not understand the outcome. It may not make sense. You may be just like Jonah and think, but Lord, it doesn't seem to, how does this work? You may not even get to find out why. As far as we we know from the book of Job, Job was never told the reason that he endured what he went through. He never saw the spiritual battle that was going on. And we all know that we're in a spiritual battle, and yet when we are in a problem, we sometimes forget that actually that could be part of what's going on, and the Lord could be using us in ways that we don't perceive or see. And finally, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know it well. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he should direct thy paths. That's, again, a great summary for the book of Jonah. Jonah called to do something that just did not make sense. Couldn't figure it out, couldn't work it out. Why would God spare Israel's enemies? But there was a bigger picture. God was using it to fulfill his plan, his purpose, so that one day God would have a people of Jews and Gentiles brought together in one, in Jesus Christ, to worship him forever, to walk with him, just as it began in the Garden of Eden, that walk with God. In the book of Revelation, we find that it's concluded that God's walk with man, that man's walk with God, God's walk with man is resumed. He will be our God, we will be his people. God's plans and God's ways are so much bigger than ours, so much above ours. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Help us, Lord, to learn from this book, if nothing else, that we can trust you, that you know all things. And we thank you, Lord, for everything we do know of you, that you are a gracious and compassionate and long-suffering God and a merciful God. And, Lord, we are so grateful because we see it in our own lives. But, Lord, help us to remember that you are good and that you do good. Whatever we go through, all things, all things work together for good. To those that love you, Lord, you will not abandon us or forsake us. You've bought us at a price. Help us, Lord, to trust you more than we've ever trusted you, whatever comes. And Lord, keep us looking unto Jesus. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.